You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will be inspired to use their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and it's so great to be here with all of you this evening. Tonight's show is going to be especially interesting for young parents and new moms as I share the story tonight of a pediatrician. Her name is Allison Escalante. Um, Allison is on a mission to get rid of what she calls the should storm in our culture that surrounds parents. And um, I, I, by the way, I came upon her TED talk and I could not agree more with um, the work that she's trying to do and, and helping young moms and parents. And she'll be with us in just a moment. If you're new to the show and you'd like to learn more about our watch team of on-air contributors, please feel free to reach out to Laura Scotty and you can email Laura at laura at womentowatch.net and that is women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And don't forget as always to sign up for our monthly newsletter or download the podcast when you visit our website at womentowatch.net. You'll be able to see our incredible lineup of guests and be the first to know about new markets that we hope to be launching in very soon. So now I'm very thrilled and honored to welcome to the show Dr. Allison Escalante, pediatrician, TEDx speaker, and writer. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's great to have you on, and I would say that the work that you're doing is more timely um, and relevant today with the pandemic and things that are going on, I would say, because really at the heart of what you're trying to do is alleviate um, stress and anxiety for moms and parents. And um, I, of course, want to start with your background and your upbringing and see what kind of led to you uh, doing this work today. So Talk to our listeners a little bit about your your upbringing in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, which I understand you grew up right across the street from Princeton University. And uh, tell us what those early years were like. 
Yes, I did. I, I grew up in a house that's probably about 140 years old now, um, a block away from Princeton University. And one of the things that was really fun about that was on Sunday afternoons, we used to go and play on the university grounds. And Princeton is known for some really fun sculptures uh, that are a great deal of fun for kids to climb on. So we spent hours on top of the tigers and uh, climbing around on a sculpture called Oval with Points. Well, that sounds dangerous. <laughs> you know, it was it's great fun. And it, it was this oval with points pointed toward the center. Uh, and uh, kids loved it. it. It was better than a playground. Right. Well, you know, all kids need something to climb on. And if they're not outside, they're, they're climbing on the furniture. And you, you know you have two boys, right? I do. And yeah. they are still monkeys. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with your dad for a second. I know that um, your dad was a civil engineer. And according to our conversation that we had a couple months ago, you talked about him and how he kind of helped you find solutions to problems. Give me an example of that. You know, engineers really think about finding effective solutions. It's less about finding the perfect or the ideal. It's more about addressing the problem at hand. And I think that's probably more true of civil engineers than anyone else, although I'm not an engineer, so I may not have room to speak, but I come from a long line of engineers and I married one. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> in particular, civil engineers are very interested in making things work. And my dad developed an interest in environmental engineering, which was brand new at the time. And we used to have family dinner table conversations about how to solve environmental problems. Um, and I don't know the facts of this at this point in time, but there was a large controversy when I was a child about styrofoam packaging at McDonald's. And at the time, the environmentalists, who were really great intentions trying to save the environment, um, advocated so hard to remove the styrofoam that McDonald's changed it uh, to coated paper packaging. And I remember the dinner table conversation of my dad laying out the thought process and then pointing out the environmental impact of each type of packaging in terms of how they're made and how they degrade and actually pointing out that in practical purposes, um, the styrofoam packaging was actually better for the environment when you looked at the entire cost and processing than the lined paper. And that just really stayed with me. Whether that's correct or not, I, I can't say, but that way of thinking about it, of not being so focused on our ideals that we don't look at the practicality. And he then got involved in Brownfields restoration and uh, was actually on um, the governor of New Jersey's first uh, Brownfields restoration um, task force. And, and I, I just think that really stayed with me. Do you think you apply that, that way of thinking to the work you're doing today? Absolutely. I think being a doctor is the biological version of being an engineer, right? Engineers take hard science and apply it to problems. And then doctors take biology and medicine and apply it to real lives. 
And uh, you really can't be worried about doing it exactly a certain way when it's people's lives and people's health. You have to look at where they're at and who is this person and what is their situation. So, Allison, tell me a little bit about your um, high school years, because becoming a doctor takes a lot of, um, you know, intellect. And I know you have extensive education. And I'm curious if when you were um, your younger years in school, if, if schooling came easy to you, did you have to work hard at the science and the math? What was it like? Oh, I was a massive nerd. Um, and I was in high school <laughs> in the 90s when we were all supposed to be ironic and, you know, not care too much about school. And I couldn't really care. I, I couldn't pretend that I didn't love learning and I just couldn't get enough of it. Um, so I was interested in every subject. Uh, it's interesting when you ask about working hard because in many ways I was very fortunate and things did come easily to me, um, especially in the sciences. But I also worked extremely hard anyway. And I think that that may have had to do with an element of imposter syndrome where I was always sure that if I put in a certain amount of work, I probably needed to put in more than that um, to get to good enough. Mm, that's so interesting. And, you know, something that we talk often about, there, there's irony to me in you saying I was a nerd and, um, you know, because you enjoyed learning so much. And the truth is, we're, you know, we want young girls in particular to know how cool it is to want to learn and go into STEM. Um, I wonder if you have those opportunities to have those kind of conversations with any of the young girls um, that you treat. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think this generation views this very differently. Um, I think in the 90s, you know, teenage culture was about being cool and not caring too much. And what I really enjoy about Gen Z kids is that it is absolutely cool to care now. And so they are fine with caring about things. If anything, they're under pressure to find a passion um, yes. in a way that might actually not be so good for them. Mm. Um, but in terms of being allowed to say, yes, I love school and I want to go into STEM, oh, these, these are a bunch of go-getters, these kids. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love hearing that. And I know, because how old are your boys? Uh, my boys are 9 and 11 years old. 9 and 11. So you're seeing this whole new next generation um, and, and really what's going on. Um, Allison, I want to talk to you about, you experienced two major life events um, that I'm sure shaped uh, a lot of who you are today. I wonder if you can tell our listeners about um, what happened to your mom and then what happened to your brother. When I was young, uh, my mother stayed home, and but she was a very intelligent woman, and uh, it was the 80s and then the 90s, and more and more women were working, and she, when we got old enough, you know, she really became interested in doing more, and uh, when I was in middle school, she went back to work as uh, a life insurance salesperson. And I remember her putting on her suit and just looking at this very put together professional woman and thinking, I want to be like that someday. And 
she was one day driving out to a sales call and a car uh, came up behind her. It was reckless driving and rear-ended her um, at, I believe, a, a rate of 50 to 60 miles an hour. And she was at a stop. Um, so she suffered a traumatic brain injury, uh, which caused substantial um, changes for her, including losing her ability to do mental math which made it um, not possible for her to continue in this work of being an insurance salesman, which is unfortunate because she had already won awards in her first year. Mm. It also, you know, like traumatic brain injury does, it impacts um, emotional regulation. And so my mom went from frequently very poised to sometimes struggling to find words. And that was extremely hard for her because she was someone who was very articulate, uh, is very articulate, and um, loves a good word. I think I got a lot of my love of a good word from my mom. And to watch her struggling to find basic words like eggs and just how hard that was for her, um, it, was, it was a lot. How old were you at the time? I believe I was about 11 years old at that time, and I had two younger brothers. Wow. So how would you say that affected your security as as a child, your your perspective, your life view? I, I don't know that I had much time to process it uh, because there wasn't much time between what happened to my mom and then what happened to my brother nine months later. That, that's incredible. Um, you know, and I want to give you time to, to share that story as well. So we're going to go into our first break. And when we come back, we'll talk about that. I'm joined this evening by Dr. Allison Escalante. Uh, Allison is a pediatrician, a TEDx speaker, and a writer. Stay tuned for our watch team, and we'll be right back. Now, the women to watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Addiction a complex condition, a brain disease that leads to psychological and physical impulses to consume chemicals or drugs, or engage in activity even if it's harmful. The medical term is substance use disorder, SUD. If severe, the intense focus on the drug or activity can take over your life. The good news, many effective treatments are available and people can recover from addiction and lead normal productive lives. This morning on Your Radio Doctor, we heard from Dr. Denny Carice, Assistant Professor at the University of Penn and Chief Science Officer at Recovery Centers of America. Addiction, what comes to mind? Marijuana, opioids, sedatives like Valium, illicit drugs, cocaine or heroin? The number one drug that's abused? Alcohol. And what about cigarettes, vaping, caffeine, or behaviors like gambling, eating, working? Most people start using a drug voluntarily curiosity or peer pressure, stress release, feeling pleasure. Up to 60% have co-occurring mental health issues, which can be present before SUD or result from it. Psychiatrist Dr. Mark Fry from Mayo Clinic reports women with bipolar disorder have a seven times higher risk for alcoholism. Dr. Carice says, get help. It's a sign of commitment and strength, not weakness. Look for a treatment center with qualified doctors, nurses, psychiatrists, and master level therapists. The best predictor for success is family involved with the treatment, accredited by the Joint Commission, and offers comprehensive care, not just detox. When you leave detox, you're at your highest risk of dying from overdose. Continue residential and outpatient care. Recovery is a lifelong process. If you have a relapse, it doesn't mean failure. 
Like any disease, asthma, diabetes, you just need more help. Holidays bring additional stress, then add COVID. Stay connected. Be physically distant, not socially distant. Do online meetings. Keep a routine. Know your triggers and be prepared. You got this. 1-800-RECOVERY. Now the women to watch. Legal Watch. This is Nicole Hitner at Ballard's Bar Law Firm for Legal Watch. It's a definite race to the finish line for many business owners this month as we eye a new chief in the White House. The uncertainty surrounding taxation and the expectation that corporate tax rates will skyrocket means that deal teams are very busy right now. Biden has indicated that he'll raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28% and that any carried interest would be taxed as income instead of the 20% capital gains rate currently used. Basically, that doubles the tax for many people. While it's possible that the tax plan won't pass in the Senate, it's not a gamble most people are inclined to take. That said, the chill that COVID-19 has had on many deals is far from over. Clearly, some industries are more at risk than others for major losses, think restaurants, fitness centers, stuff like that. But the ongoing chill has led to private equity firms sitting on an estimated $1.5 trillion in dry powder right now. And many family-owned businesses are really hoping to sell yet in 2020 and get their hands on some of that money. If you're in that situation or know someone who is, reach out to me and make sure you're getting expert advice. Our teams at Ballard can help. This is Nicole Hitner for your Legal Watch. Happy holidays to you and yours. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. I'm speaking to Dr. Allison Escalante this evening. Um, and Allison, you shared a very personal story in um, the first segment and about your mom um, suffering a brain injury from a, an accident. And not long after, the same thing happened to your brother. Um, tell us what happened and then how your family moved on uh, as a family unit from that. Well, I will say... Thank God for my mom's commitment to safety because the practice of wearing bike helmets as a child was, nobody was doing it then. And yet my mom insisted that we wear bicycle helmets and we were the only kids in town who wore them. And we were in fact teased and bullied for it, but we were more afraid of my mother than we were of the bullies. So (laughs) we kept those helmets on even when mom wasn't looking because she could tell. Yeah, And um, my brother was out with his friend, Steve, and they had been riding on the bike trail that was near the playground that the kids used. And um, a light rainstorm came on. It was a summer afternoon. So I remember being at home and I remember hearing Steve pounding on the screen door, yelling, Paul's been hurt. Paul's been hurt. And... I was right behind my dad, who was a college runner, and my dad went into action mode and asked where, and Steve told him, and my my dad was off like a rocket. And I remember myself, for no unclear reasons, just following my dad. So I was running behind my dad, um, and I remember feeling a very confused sense of being in a movie as though I was out of my body watching myself and immediately criticizing myself for thinking about me when my brother had just been hurt. Um, Mm -hmm. About two blocks later, we reached my brother and uh, I was uh, maybe half a block away when I watched my dad 
go up to a group of people surrounding uh, something in the street and say, that's my son, and they parted and let him through. So when I reached them, um, I said, that's my brother, in the same tone, and they moved out of my way too. And there was my little brother, who was nine years old, um, lying in a pool of water and his own blood. And he was surrounded by first aid uh, workers who were struggling with him to try to get him onto a backboard um, that was uh, far too big for him. The next thing I remember is feeling sure that I had to do something, that I had to find some way to help my brother. And was he conscious, Allison, at that moment? Was he awake? He was moaning and uh, thrashing around. Okay. Um, at that time. And I think I remember thinking, where were his glasses? And so I ended up looking around and I found his glasses shattered um, yards away. Um, in the end, what we found out is that, um, in this case, another case of reckless driving, a car had been driving um, a gray car without its lights on, uh, as is, was legally required at that time during a rainstorm, um, and driving too fast in a residential zone, and um, hit my brother. And my brother was, uh, his chin smashed on the uh, car, and then he was thrown backwards and hit the back of his head. Mm. And his bicycle helmet was cracked all the way down the middle. Wow. So it was quite clear that if that helmet hadn't cracked, it would have been him who had cracked. Wow, wow. So he was wearing that helmet, and thank God for that. That's right. That's right, because he did He did live. Yeah. And, you know, you shared with me, Allison, that there was something about that experience in particular that led you into medicine. When did you when did you know? What was it about that 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 had you make that decision? I don't think I knew till looking back in retrospect. You know, I think um, equally as important as my brother's accident and the many months of watching the impact of traumatic brain injury on him and his struggle for recovery was the moment in the hospital with my youngest brother while my parents were in the back in the emergency room. And I was hearing these inhuman screams from the waiting room uh, and wondering who they were and deep down very sure that that was my little brother. My youngest brother was about four or five years old at that time. And I did everything I could to be steady and calm um, so that he wouldn't be worried. And mm. I remember this being hours. Um, I think there might have been cartoons on on a TV, but it wasn't like we had iPads then. And I feel like that moment was critical for me because it was after that that I tried to not need anything, to make sure that I was... Um, going to stay stable for my family and help them. And, you know, my brother needed a lot of therapy and my youngest brother um, didn't really understand. And so I tried to be very steady and um, helpful and and maybe try to be the perfect child, Um, which as a 12-year-old led me to be somewhat irritable. (laughs) Mm. 
Right. Which at that age, <laughs> that comes naturally anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so th- it's interesting to me. I think, you know, you speak about and we're going to get into the work that you're doing. And I see this direct connection to your awareness of this kind of imposter syndrome need to be perfect. Um you know, just trying to do what society tells us we should do. And I'm wondering if in your little 11-year-old mind, you were thinking, you know, this family's been through enough, so I really do need to be perfect so that I don't bring any more angst to the family. I think that if I could have articulated it, that was exactly what I was thinking. Mm. Wow, that's a lot. That's a, you know, that's a big burden for um, a little 11-year-old girl. And the fact that you were the oldest, of course, they probably looked to you anyway um, to be the helper and the leader for the boys. I think so, but I don't think my parents had any idea what was really going on inside my head or they would have told me not to take that on. Mm. Well, that's a, gr- that's a good lesson in, in communicating. Right. And and I would imagine that you encourage your own boys to be as open with you as possible about what their own angst is. I think being a parent is so much fun. And it's if you can. It's not easy for everyone to do. I think I have unusually vivid memories of my childhood, but um, and I I love children. And so it's just useful and fun to imagine what it's like from their perspective. And if you do that, sometimes you can get good at a little detective work to try to bring out what your kids might be thinking. So I like to say to them things like, hey, you know, I noticed this happened. And and sometimes in this situation, kids might do this or they might think that. What do you think about that? And um, that's a great way to get both my own kids and my patients talking. And a lot of times then they'll tell me, yes, that's what they're thinking or they'll correct me. But then I get a much better idea of what is going on inside them. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, Rather than the open-ended, you know, how was your day? (laughs) Because we know where that leads. Fine. (laughs) Or uh, lengthy descriptions of video games. There you go. (laughs) So, you know, Allison, you, you know, you have been and are a practicing um, pediatrician. And one of the things, and I want to kind of find out when this happened and was there a moment that you recognized something. Um, One of your views is that our society is really one of criticism and perfectionism, which leads to burnout and anxiety for for children and parents. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Just, you know, culturally, we're always um, wondering how we can be perfect and better at everything that we do. And you call it a should storm. When did you first recognize it? And when did you decide that you wanted to not only do something about it, but speak on it? I knew something was really wrong in my first year in practice as a pediatrician. I remember going from pediatric intensive care medicine in my residency and, you know, seeing parents up against the worst, anticipating the possible death of your child. And that puts things in perspective, doesn't it? And then I Mm. came out into practice Um, and 
had people expressing extreme anxiety. I, I don't mean a little anxiety. I mean a lot of anxiety over cold symptoms, mild cold symptoms. A lot of anxiety over slight deviations from a list of developmental milestones that they had read on the internet and concern that this might mean their child had a devastating neurological problem. Um, And I used to walk outside the patient room and and for that first year I really observed that um, my uh, older partners uh, who'd been in practice 15 up to 20 years would, would kind of walk around shaking their heads between patients saying, I don't know what's going on with parents. They get more anxious every year. And that was 13 years ago. And um, in my experience, parents continue to get more anxious every year. So after a year of that, I did what I do best, and I hit the books. And I looked everywhere for an explanation of what was going on, and most especially for that effective solution, for that book I could give my parents or that advice I could give my parents that would ease this burden. Right around that time, I also had my first child and was suddenly inundated with a wave of anxiety like I have never experienced, um, which was uh, humbling and useful for me to experience just what it really feels like to be a parent right now. That's so interesting. And, you know, um, would you you are the mother of two. And I wanted to know if you feel you have conquered that that should storm or do you still find moments where as a mother you you're th- saying to yourself I, I really should be doing this I really should be doing that or, or even comparing your parenting skills to others that you know I think that pediatric medicine is the only branch of medicine where your personal life is sort of a job qualification <laughs> so your your ability as a parent somehow is part of whether you're a qualified pediatrician, right? Because if you can't do a good job with your own kids, then maybe you're not good with other people's kids. So I think there's constant pressure. um, And I'm not saying it's necessarily harder to be a pediatrician mom, but there is a a definite feeling like you're supposed to somehow be an example. You're supposed to somehow be not only good at this, but possibly better at this than most people in order to be a qualified pediatrician. And have the answers to everything, right? And you're, have, you're, that's yes. right. That is, so the should storm is the culture yep. that says you should do this. You should do that. If you don't do this, you're going to mess up your kids for life. And then, um, Pediatricians are the priests of the should storm because people look to us for all of the right shoulds. Wow. Yeah, I can't imagine that pressure to, you know, you're a doctor and a mother, so how could you not have all the answers to everything? Um, Listen, we're going to go into our next break. When we come back, I want to talk about your um, PsyC Start method and how that's uh, working for your patients. Stay with us this evening as I talk to Dr. Allison Escalante and stay tuned for our watch team. We'll be right back. Now the women to watch. Finance Watch. Hi, this is Terry, and I'm from Fortis Family Office. The pandemic has affected all of us in our daily lives, so it should be no surprise that it will have an impact on tax planning for this year, too. There are ramifications for quarantine in place, working from home, the CARES Act, and more. 
So let's start with the impact of your stimulus check. The CARES Act directed the IRS to issue stimulus checks of up to $1,200 per taxpayer and $500 per qualified child dependent earlier this year. These payments are not subject to income tax in 2020, though they may have an impact on certain credits for higher income taxpayers. Many people received unemployment compensation in 2020, some of them for the first time. This is taxable income and will need to be reported on your 2020 tax return. Many of us are working at home. The home office deduction is available to qualifying self-employed taxpayers, independent contractors, and those working in the gig economy. However, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act suspended the business use of a home deduction from 2018 through 2025 for employees. Those who receive a paycheck or a W-2 exclusively from an employer are not eligible for the deduction, even if they are currently working from home. But here's some good news. Normally, there's no tax benefit for giving to charity unless you itemize deductions. The CARES Act created an above-the-line deduction of up to $300 for cash contributions for taxpayers who don't itemize. To take advantage of this provision, make sure you to donate before the end of the year. If you make estimated tax payments in addition to having taxes withheld by an employer, make sure the amounts are aligned with what you actually expect to pay. If you find yourself in danger of facing underpayment penalties, you can make up the shortfall through increased withholding on your salary or bonuses. That's because a larger estimated tax payment at the end of the year can still expose you to penalties, but withholding is considered to have been paid rateably throughout the year and can save you from penalties. And yes, there's more. So tune in next week for part two of planning your 2020 taxes. This is Terry. Peace out. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Now, the Women to Watch, Nonprofit Watch. Good evening, Women to Watch listeners. I'm Dr. Nakia Owens, Managing Director of Financial Empowerment at the United Way of Greater Philadelphia and Southern New Jersey. Well, this past Tuesday, December 1st, was once again Giving Tuesday, where millions of individuals like yourself give of their time, their talent, and resources to wonderful causes that make an impact globally, nationally and locally by improving people's lives, building communities and providing access to opportunity. United Way has been a long recipient of people's generosity. It has been able to offer many opportunities, as I've mentioned in my previous segments, like the Family Empowerment Program that supports children and families and keeping them stably housed, or the individual development or college savings account programs that lessen the burden for students and parents by supporting post-secondary education. Or maybe it's the small business helping them weather the storm of the pandemic and keeping their doors open with the help of the PA 30 Day Fund. On behalf of United Way and the nonprofit community, I take this opportunity to extend our sincere gratitude because even in the midst of these unprecedented times, you showed your continuous commitment in supporting our missions, goals to improve the lives of children, families, and communities that make us all stronger by living united. And until next time, 
I'm Dr. Owens, your nonprofit watch. Now, more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Hi, Sue Rocco here, checking in with Watch Team member Mary Manzo to get her take on this week's guest. Hi, Mary. Hi, how are you, Sue? Great. It's great to have your input and feedback on our guest this week. So this week I interviewed Dr. Allison Escalante, and Allison is a pediatrician and on a quest to help parents eliminate what she calls the should storm. So first off, I wanted to ask you about your own experience raising your girls and if you ever found yourself falling prey to that should storm of what you should and should not be doing. You know, uh, I do think that I ran into that, right? But I think for me, it was a lot more limited, um, only because of, I think, uh, the access to social media that, you know, the moms now have. Uh, so for me, I think the shit storm really kind of evolved more around, um, you know, uh, the opinions of family or opinions of, you know, friends or other parents. Um, you know, and am I doing the right thing? And where am I getting my information from? So for me, you know, that type of access to um, information was just kind of limited and not what it is today. So yes, I do think I fell into it. Uh, but at the same time, I think it wasn't as much as it is today. So it wasn't very overwhelming. Right, right. Did you have anxiety? Um around the fact that you were raising children and working outside of the home? Oh, yeah. Um, I went back to work when my youngest was three. But, you know, I I certainly was fortunate in that I had my parents. So both my parents were still alive. And at least that kind of took off some of the anxiety. Uh, But then somewhere, um, you know, when the girls were in grammar school, my mom had passed away and my father had become ill. And now I found myself like a working mom, you know, and now I have to rely on others to help with the children. And so now that created a whole um, bunch of anxiety. And so, you know, you really wanted to ensure that it wasn't going to impact them in any way, right? This was a change also to them. So, and then, you know, probably some years later, I found myself in a divorce which then added even more anxiety to the fact that, you know, the kids were, um, you know, I was working and the girls, you know, were home and I had to have other people step in and it, it did created a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, I think that you really had to draw off of um, friends and family and other parents uh, you know, draw off of their advice and opinions and help. Um, and you kind of take what you think is the right thing. Right. Tell me what you've seen as an expert in technology that relates to this topic and perhaps, you know, the millennials and um, their um, yeah. parenting. Sure. I did a segment not too long ago on the millennial mom. And, you know, just to give you an example, I mean, they, they just, they pay a lot of attention to, the social network um, to get their advice, um, you know, and, and when I did a little bit of research as an example, like when I Googled what baby formula is the most natural, I, I think I had like 12,400. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so oh my it's gosh. Gotta be, 
very confusing for them, and they do, you know, draw off of the opinions of social networks. So I can't even imagine. Yeah. Well, I think we're lucky to have someone like um, Dr. Escalante out there really pointing out the nonsense around the pressure that's placed on parents and, you know, just letting them use more of their intuition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Mary. I appreciate you stopping in and giving us your input on this week's guest. Have a great day. All right. You too. Thank you. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. If you were with us in the first hour, welcome back. And if you're just tuning in, welcome in to the show this evening. I'm talking to Dr. Allison Escalante. And um, Allison is a pediatrician. She is a speaker. She is a writer. And she is on a mission um, doing really important work to help young mothers and parents um, kind of take the pressure off themselves with their parenting. And um, before uh, we went into the break, Allison, I mentioned you really came up with a great new method for parents, and it's called Sci, See, and Start. So I'd love for you to talk about that with our listeners and the results that you're seeing from it. Well, absolutely. You know, the moment that we even anticipate becoming parents Uh, We are absorbed into a culture of conscious, constant criticism uh, that drives anxiety. It drives perfectionistic parenting. um, And it's full of people just everywhere giving you advice. um, And this advice always comes with a a threat. So you should do this. Uh, You should never do that. Um, If you don't do it exactly this way, the way you should do it, your child is likely to be messed up for life. And, you know, it's everywhere. Um, social media, the internet, your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, um, that it's very, very hard to be independent of it. Um, And so when we look at our kids, we often are filled with anxiety, worrying, what should I be doing? How should I make sure that I do this right so my kids don't miss an opportunity or aren't messed up for life? And so when people feel that anxiety, they tend to go looking for the right should. And this takes you down a rabbit hole um, of books full of advice, um, often carrying this exact threat. If you don't do it our way, your kid's going to be a mess. Um, Or um, uh, many, many articles on the Internet which um, make people feel terrible because they'll say like, hey, you can fix this problem in two easy steps. Um, And if you don't, maybe you're just not a good parent or gosh, um, if, if that's happening, then maybe this terrible thing is happening with your child. And I looked so hard for a solution that would work for people, and I I couldn't find anything. I found so much that just seemed to ramp up that anxiety and that list of shoulds. 
And that's when I hit on, after 10 years of frustration trying to figure this out, I hit on a deceptively simple three-step method that I call Sci see, and Start. And, and tell me how that works. So the problem with the anxiety driven by our culture of criticism is that it disconnects us from our kids. We're not really parenting our kids. We're parenting the should in our head. We're parenting the voice from our auntie that said, you should never let the baby cry like that. What kind of mother are you? And so to do this well, to parent the way our kids need and the way we need, you have to be connected with the child in front of you. So how do you do that? Well, just like we all remember from kindergarten, if you catch on fire, what are you supposed to do? Stop, drop, and roll. If you feel that anxiety, if you feel a should, sigh, see, and start. So sigh. You take a deep breath into your belly and then let it go long and slow. The sigh is a unique biological mechanism that we all have built in that helps us activate the part of our nervous system um, called the ventral vagus nerve that brings us into a calm, connected social state. And the key to a sigh is that you breathe out really long and slow because it's the long, slow out-breath that tells the body you're safe. And when you're safe, you can connect. You know, you cannot sigh if you're being chased by a lion. You're going to take fast, shallow breaths while you're running away. And you can't sigh while you're hiding from a lion either. That's when you're going to be holding your breath with anxiety. But when you let do a long, slow out breath, you're telling your body, there's no lions here. It's okay to really be with your kids. And this works great because parents tell me all the time, oh my gosh, doc, I can try that. I sigh at my kids all the time anyway. (laughs) With the eye roll at the same time. (laughs) Absolutely. So we can just harness that and make it more deliberate. Right. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, you're, as you're describing that and you know, your voice in describing the importance of breathing is very calming. <laughs> well, I just I, took I, my own deep breath listening to you. That's right. And that's exactly what happens. Whenever I teach this method, I make sure to take my own sigh. Mm. And it's remarkable, as soon as you do it, how quickly your own system changes, right? I'm excited to be talking with you today. But when I do that long, slow out breath, it sends a deeply calming message to my nervous system and my voice changes and it changes to exactly the kind of melodic, calm voice that really helps when you're parenting. Mm, Absolutely. Okay. See, I'm assuming is to see the issue at hand. That's right. Elaborate on that. Yeah, so it only works if you've already calmed yourself down, right? Right. It only works if you're already ready to connect. But when you see, this is a mindfulness moment. And, And, you know, we've learned through the mindfulness research that you don't have to meditate for 30 minutes to get mindfulness. Right. Mindfulness is simply being fully aware of the present moment with acceptance. That means you really see what's going on before you try to change anything. And what's going on might be how you're feeling yourself, how your body's feeling. It might be the situation, how much Play-Doh is on the floor. It might be 
your child and their body language. You know, are their fists all balled up like they're about to punch their brother? Do Is their lower lip quivering like they're about to cry? These are things that are going to go into your assessment of what makes sense to do next. But we move so quickly to acting. We, we go from worry to acting on a should before we go through these steps of connecting and really seeing. And so we make mistakes. C gets us back into the moment with our child so that we can make our best choices. Allison, one of the things I'm so curious about is when you look at generations prior, do you was there ever a time that parents prior to books and apps and YouTube um, were, you know, um, calm and seeing and making the right choices intuitively? Well, that's that question could easily be an entire uh second podcast episode um, because it gets very complex. But there's a couple quick answers there. One is, to a large extent, no, because old school parenting uh, involved um, what's called a roles-based society, where your goal was to get your child to fit into the role expected of them in society. So, you know, kids were um, criticized or or experienced corporal punishment if they didn't fit that role appropriately. Mm. Um, on the other hand, people used to raise kids. Now we optimize them. So um, kids were left to themselves a lot more in the past. They were given a lot more um, autonomy. Um, and so there was something very positive about that. And, um, there's certainly never, I think, been a time when there haven't been plenty of parents who are affectionate to their child. And I think that the, you know, I think parents always naturally try to connect. It's wired into our nervous system. Um, but I don't think there was ever a culture that deliberately asked us to look at our child and say, how can I help this child be who they are? And one of the things I say <clears throat> often is that I feel as though the, the one of the reasons we're not able to tap into our own um, intuition, right, as a as a parent is because of the frenetic life that we're living as a culture. And that's about being told it's important to be busy and to be in, you know, a million sports and activities. And 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 really, it is the opposite of what we should be um, challenging our kids to do. I believe it was Elaine, no, it wasn't Elaine Aarons, the author of um, The Price of Privilege, uh, her name is escaping me right now, referred to it as the empty self uh, syndrome, where kids are kept so busy so that they don't miss out on any opportunities, um, that they never have to spend time with themselves, and they never really get a sense of then who that self is. Um, and I think that um, social media also impacts that as well, because, you know, our kids do spend so much time on electronics. I, I don't know when they have time to stare at the wall with a little boredom and sort out who they might be. So in, you know, reference to that, have you seen any positives, if, you know, um, if we can say that from this this global pandemic, which has forced people to slow down and be still? Well, I think it forced people to slow down initially. 
Um, I think we called that the great pause. And I had parents definitely telling me, like, we're going to pull that back on activities and, and we're, we're not going to give up this family time. But at this point, with so many families struggling with remote learning and their own work, um, what I'm largely seeing at this point is that the pandemic has now infused the should storm with steroids. And parents are under more intense pressure than ever to make sure that their kids um, develop optimally. Oh, gosh. That's not good. (laughs) That's not good. So it's a whole different kind of um, should storm going on. Listen, we're going to go into our last break. I'm speaking with Dr. Allison Escalante this evening. She's a pediatrician. I encourage you to watch her TED Talk. Um, And she's also a writer. I want to talk a little bit about your contributing roles when we come back for the last segment. Stay with us for our watch team, and we'll be right back. Now, the women to watch, military watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert. Senior Vice President of Military and Veteran Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. Tomorrow is National Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. When we remember and honor the 2,403 service members and civilians killed during the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. This event led to our country declaring war on Japan and entering World War II. 79 years ago. Every year, Remembrance events are held at the Pearl Harbor National Memorial in Hawaii to pay tribute to those we have lost. This annual observance starts the season of remembering the courageous men and women who died while serving our country. While the holidays are often a joyous time for most, it is also a somber occasion for many families who are missing a loved one at the table. To help pay tribute to those we've lost, each December brings National Wreaths Across America Day, whose mission is to remember, honor, and teach. The day includes a wreath-laying ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery and at more than 1,600 national cemeteries across all 50 U.S. states and recognition for those buried at sea and those buried abroad. Comcast NBC Universal is a corporate partner of Rees Across America, which is taking place this year on Saturday, December 19th. Our employees from all over the country will come together to honor those we've lost through the generation by laying wreaths. Anyone is welcome to sponsor a Fallen Heroes wreath, so I invite you to join the Rees Across America mission as we enter the season of giving. To learn more about this great organization and get involved, please visit wreathesacrossamerica.org. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Mansa from Pathways Consulting Group. Did you know that almost 90% of new moms are millennials? Millennials' age range is roughly 18 to 35. These moms are very aware of things like ingredients and foods, for example. Nearly half of them feel that natural, wholesome ingredients are an important thing to consider before buying products for their families. They're inclined to purchase products from brands that understand what matters to them as a parent and ones that other parents may have recommended. 
If they're like my daughter, who's a new mother, they research on blogs and social media before buying things like formula, diapers, strollers. They visit online parenting communities where they can share information and get advice. And the most visited sites are Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Their home PCs and laptops collect dust as most of them are using smartphones. Once they've done their research, many millennial moms do half or more of their shopping online. When I was a young mom, my access to information was limited to the Dr. Spock book, my pediatrician, and other experienced moms. Some would say that having that amount of access to information could be considered information overload. As example, when I Google what baby formula is the most natural, I have 12,400,000 results to search through and countless blogs. When I was a young mom, I had whatever was on the shelf and my pediatrician to guide me. Both have their pros and cons, and I wonder if I had had the access that young moms have today, would I have done things differently? For example, would I have leveraged the online shopping experience at a convenience? I do love Amazon. I might have felt a sense of comfort to read about others' parenting experiences, but for the most part, I don't think I would have changed my basic instinct and gut reactions to things. As a mom, for most of us, that comes naturally, regardless of whether we are the millennial mom or the baby boomer. What do you think? I'd like to know. Email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, I'm speaking to Dr. Allison Escalante. And Allison, we were talking about your method, the Psi, See, and Start method. I neglected to um, let you lay out that last part, um, start. Yes. So after you sigh and see, that's when you get started. And um, I love the start method because it's kind of different from any other parenting method out there. You start thinking about what's appropriate here. You start thinking about what might work best. You start listening or trying something different. You start something, start nothing, start the wrong thing. It really doesn't matter because if you sigh and see before you start, you get to know your child and you build skills quickly. If you get it right, that's wonderful. You can file that away as something you've learned. But if you get it wrong, you're going to probably trigger a should. Oh, I should have done it that way. But we know what to do when we feel a should. We sigh, see, and start again. And start is where I get really excited because start is all about creative learning, or you can call it experimental learning, or you can call it mistakes as a method. Um, And I have tried um, to share with the parents in my Should Free Parenting Facebook group the idea uh, that maybe the best way to be a parent is to make as many mistakes as possible on purpose. Um, And they weren't so sure about that idea. (laughs) (laughs) But um, this models an idea of um, we're not it's not willy nilly. It's not, you know, just doing whatever. It's deliberately 
connecting with the situation and then making your best attempt and then saying, okay, this worked or that worked or that didn't and moving on. And what's so great here is guess where kids learn their approach to life and problem solving? Well, they learn it by watching what we do far more than what we say. Mm. So if we adopt this kind of method in our interactions directly with them, guess what the kids start to learn? They start to learn how to walk out of their own should storm. And the kids absolutely live in a should storm of their own. And are you seeing firsthand then the um, alleviation of anxiety in, in families that are able to do this? Yes. And I have to tell you that I um, am just so deeply moved by it because I was just trying to help. I didn't know. This method seemed to make a lot of sense, but I didn't know if it was going to really work. And yeah, it seemed like it was working for me. But when people started using it and they started sharing their stories of houses full of stress and conflict transforming into houses with more peace and connection. People have sent me the most amazing words, transforming their house, um, changing who they are. I mean, I, I, I couldn't, I, I can't believe it, um, but it, it's helping. It's working for people. Well, I, I just think it makes so much sense and, and you've simplified it. So, you know, um, which is the most important thing because people don't want another another thing on their plate. Um, you know, Allison, I wanted to ask you another question. You, you're you a practicing pediatrician. You write for multiple media outlets. Um, you're, I know that things have slowed down with the pandemic, but you know, you're typically speaking at conferences and raising two boys. Are you happy in the busy? Ah, so it depends what you're busy with. You know, when I took on, I've been writing for Psychology Today for some time, and when I took on um, writing for Forbes, um, less about parenting and more about the science of human performance in a professional context, people said, how are you going to keep up with that? And I said, you know, the thing is, the writing is, is my play. So I do a lot of it while my kids are having their screen time, and You know, uh, my husband's doing his break time and that's when I do my writing. And I know for many people it would feel like work, but for the majority of the time, it's play for me. Um, And then getting to connect with people and share these things, it's it's renewing. Um, In fact, I find that if I'm not, if it's been too long since I've been able to have a speaking engagement or if I haven't written an article in too long, I I start to feel... um, more tired. It, it's actually, it renews my, my energy. It's, it's yeah. great fun. So there's no, pre- you know, because you have to come up with content and a topic and something worth saying or writing. Is there a place you, you typically get inspiration? Do you search it out or does it come to you? Well, um, you know, when it comes to writing about the science of human performance, um, there are researchers doing wonderful work on this all the time. Um, and also, uh, you know, so many people had taken the size C and start meth and they say, wait a minute, that's not about parenting. That's about performance under pressure. And that's about finding, you know, that, that can be applied other places. So I had doctors asking me, well, 
how do we apply this to doctoring and the pressure we're under? And then I had professionals asking, well, how do we apply this to the pressure we're feeling as an organization um, during the pandemic? And, and how can we apply this to leadership um, so that we can connect better with our people during this time? Um, so I think that there's so much of a conversation about this. How can we live our best lives? And uh, there's such a, a depth of the neuroscience um, that we actually operate a little differently than we think we do. And some little tweaks can really make life easier. So I think there's just, um, it's, it's not that there's not enough inspiration. It's more that there's so much I could be talking about. Um, I simply can't keep up. Oh, I bet. You know, so you, you know, you mentioned the science of human performance and you're referred to as an expert in that field. If someone were to say, what is that? The science of human performance? What does that mean? Well, I think it means number one, what are we actually like? How do we actually operate? And then number two, how can we use that to do our best work? Have you studied, so it's interesting to me that you're a pediatrician working with children, but you're very much um, researching and studying neuroscience, um, psychology. Um, are you interested in a dual degree? <laughs> Could you go yeah, on to so, do that? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because um, in my world, um, I feel sometimes humbled that I don't have a PhD in neuroscience, right? So right. Um, who am I? Um, but I, I pull from multiple disciplines. Um, I studied the history of ideas and culture as an undergraduate. Um, and that's why um, I focus so much on our biological reaction to the culture we live in and what are the ideas in our culture that drive us. And that can be true in our larger culture. That can be true in our organizational culture. That can be true in our family culture. Um, I pull from child development. You know, child development, right? how we start out and how we become who we are as adult humans is um, it's very interesting. It's neglected in a lot of work on adult leadership, but it's very silly because when I look at a lot of um, articles like in Harvard Business Review and so forth on um, like how to run a team well and stuff like that, I'm like, wow, that's child development. That's all stuff that we knew. And then we somehow forgot when our culture told us we needed to behave differently. Um, so the science of being a human, um, really pulls from a lot of different disciplines. Uh, I like sociology too. That talks a lot about the structures. I'm not a sociologist, but I just love to talk to them. Yeah. I think you like to learn is what, what you enjoy, right? Um, tell me how you think, you know, we're talking a lot about culture and culture simply are norms and rules and systems that are set up by people. And I'm curious what you think our culture would be like if we had more women leaders? So I would refine that statement. Culture is set up by people, but it also structures our lives and it becomes an unspoken sense of truth that we often don't question. So culture is handed down to us um, and it structures our sense of who we are and where we belong and what we're capable of. And then we can try to change it. Um, but it's an interesting thing. Uh, and I, I find the idea of how would it change if there were more le women leaders, that is, um, I, I think, the big question. There is some 
literature to suggest that it would be a very good thing. Um, we know that um, women doctors, for instance, actually spend more time with their patients and get um, better outcomes, better health outcomes uh, with their patients. Um, so that's a vote for women. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm never anti-man. I just think we need to learn from each other, right? And so there's some things that women doctors are doing that might be um, beneficial to optimize how we're all practicing. Um, I think there's some evidence that uh, women-run companies um, generally have happier employees and um, the women leaders are often seen as more strategic. Uh, I can't remember that reference, but I found that stunning. Um, because I remember being told that men were better at math and strategy. That's <laughs> and right. Women, yeah. Right. Right. Um, which uh, we're finding is is not true at all. Um, and I, I think that in a world stage, um, a world that values compassion and humanity and empathy more than um, conflict and winning um, would just be a beneficial thing. Exactly. Exactly. Tell me, Allison, what what you're most proud of um, as far as this stage in your career and life, what is it that you're most proud of that you have managed to overcome both professionally and personally? Wow. Big question, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, you know, the truth is that the center of my heart is absolutely my kids. Um, but when I say proud of that I've accomplished, I think I wouldn't apply that there because I think that when we, as our culture infor- tries to get us to turn our kids into a professional project, and I refuse to do that. <laughs> so um, I just, I think the thing I'm proudest of, not not a particular accomplishment, uh, but rather um, persistence, um, because I came into this project feeling unqualified for it um, and uh, not sure how the doors were going to open. Um, and, and I've been very persistent about it, and I think I am proud of that. And has that led you then to believe in yourself more? Right. Isn't that it? That's the, and that's what Psyche and Start is about too. Because you open up your mind to connecting with where you're at, you notice your successes more. And then you start to see evidence that you're actually good at things. And then you start to feel better because you realize, huh, I really did that. That's right. And, and, and I think at the end of the day that that belief or lack of is really what keeps people stuck from venturing into new, um, taking on new new projects. So there's not one single belief. It's a belief in in your abilities in lots of different areas. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I've been talking with a lot of entrepreneurs lately, and it seems to be all about getting in there, even though you're pretty sure that you're not qualified to do whatever you're trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> and figuring it out. Yes. Yes. Listen, that's, uh, that's it for the show. And Allison, I'm so grateful and honored to have you on this evening. Um, loved hearing your story, and I hope you'll stay in touch with us. Oh, I sure will. I, I really appreciated being a guest today. Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch. Hi, everyone. 
I'm Lynn Falconio, Chief Marketing Officer of Publicis Health for Women to Watch Marketing Watch. So far on the show, we've discussed life under the curve and how the current state of our world has upended industries, accelerated trends, and changed so many varied aspects of our lives. Although the pandemic has impacted nearly every corner of our economy, the travel and hospitality industry have been disproportionately affected by the economic fallout. Even as parts of the country reopen, many Americans are still reluctant to travel. Those that are traveling are doing so domestically and for leisure, as borders remain closed and business travelers continue to work remotely. According to the U.S. Travel Association, since the beginning of March, the pandemic has resulted in nearly $450 million in cumulative losses for the U.S. travel economy. However, it's not all bad news. We are seeing a slow return to roads and skies, and for those that are traveling, it's all about sun and snow destinations, according to Gary Kelly, the CEO of Southwest Airlines. Other major carriers are seeing similar trends. Delta reports that flights in and out of New York City are only at 25% of their 2019 levels, but their hub in Salt Lake City, gateway to the Mountain West and dozens of national parks, is still operating at 90% of last year. Airlines have launched new routes connecting Colorado ski towns like Steamboat Springs, and for those looking for sun, this fall, almost every major U.S. airline added capacity to Palm Springs as leisure travelers seek to escape to the great outdoors. As we look towards the holidays and the busiest travel season of the year, how can brands ensure safety and give consumers the confidence to travel? Next week, we'll explore how travel brands are adapting operating models and marketing strategies to ensure safety and boost customer confidence. I'm Lynn Falconio, and this was Women to Watch Marketing Watch. Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Now, Women on the Fly. I'm with Dr. Allison Escalante for our Women on the Fly segment. Allison, how do you start your day? Coffee, lots of coffee. What's your mantra for stressful moments? Hmm, I I just breathe. I believe it's just breathe. There you go. Are you a planner or more spontaneous? I like spontaneity within planned structure. (laughs) Where are you typically when inspiration strikes? Wherever I can't possibly stop and write it down, like the shower or in the car. A place you've traveled to that you'd like to go back? Barcelona. Hmm. How do you unwind? I play with my kids and our new puppy. What's your definition of feminism? So actually for me, um, feminism is about everybody getting a chance to play. What are three words that describe you? Curious, intense, (laughs) and compassionate. A book you'd recommend to our listeners? The Whole-Brained Child. And the last question, how do you end your day? I meditate to sleep. Excellent. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. 
next is our Coach's Corner podcast, which is a shorter version of our weekly show and can be heard wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm BJ Gray with this week's Coach's Corner. I started working with a client at the beginning of the pandemic who shows up every week defeated and unhappy with her job. She wants to give up despite the fact that her team is beating their sales goals, her boss likes her and her performance, and her personal financial success is at its peak. You see, she's hit this high, and now she doesn't know how to go do the hard work to go higher. The hard work is more than just performance, more than just checking the same boxes that got you here. It's grit, it's believing in your value, and it's managing your brain so you fail forward to reach the next level. And these are the three things I tell her over and over. First, train your mind. This requires being a keen observer of your thinking. Remember, your brain on autopilot is dangerous. And number two, be accountable in your job, in your relationships, and in every conversation. And this requires pushing more critical thinking and owning your potential. And three, know your value, which requires changing your beliefs and unpacking what holds you back. All three of these can be traps for unhappiness. And when you fall into these traps, you are your own worst enemy. What's happening with my client is her fear of failing now that she's delivered her best results and that her team has delivered their best results. She's afraid she doesn't really have the chops and believing it was just luck that got her here. She would rather feel doom and gloom and get ready to be let go for lack of performance. But of course the business will push her to reach bigger goals. Imagine when you were a kid growing up and your parents said, well, she can ride the bike fine with her training wheels. No need to take them off now. No, they will take them off to see if you can do better. Challenge yourself to reach your full potential. And it starts with training your mind, being accountable, and believing in your value. Thanks for listening to this edition of Coach's Corner. Connect with me directly on LinkedIn or at bjgray.com. Until next time, I'm BJ from Coach's Corner. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Stay tuned next week for my interview with author, speaker, and founder of The Women's Advantage, Mary Cantando. Thanks so much to our watch team and sponsors, and I hope you have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.